The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. This week, America discovered some startling news. Russians hacked into the email systems of the Commerce and Treasury Departments. The information age has brought about a new era of intelligence and espionage. Now, this was a blatant act of theft. But more subtle forms of espionage are available. Globalization has left many institutions, including academia, vulnerable to foreign manipulation. So I invited Glenn Tifford from the Hoover Institution to shed light on this phenomenon through a discussion of two of his recent publications. He's the editor of Global Engagement, Rethinking Risk in the Research Enterprise. It is an examination of the ways academic collaboration with China exposes vulnerabilities to our national defense. It features a forward from former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, and an introduction from Icon of Democracy Scholarship, Larry Diamond. The second publication is a report from the National Endowment for Democracy. It is titled Compromising the Knowledge Economy, Authoritarian Challenges to Independent Intellectual Inquiry. This report explains how authoritarian regimes use sharp power to influence academic institutions. Universities are the heart of political discourse in free societies. E.B. White once wrote, the reading room of a college library is the very temple of democracy. When foreign governments manipulate Western academia, it challenges an important source of democratic legitimacy. Larry Diamond explains, this is more than a national security threat. It is an existential challenge to the entire global liberal order. Globalization has not simply brought about economic interdependence. It has extended the boundaries of political influence. The United States has long had the advantage of soft power to inspire people around the world. China has now found a form of sharp power to influence the United States in turn. The global order continues to change and evolve, so it is incumbent on us to strengthen liberalism and democracy to overcome these challenges. This conversation shares themes with recent episodes that featured John Eikenberry on liberal internationalism and Marika Olberg on the Chinese Communist Party. It's a topic with multiple dimensions. It combines elements of national security with cornerstone values such as liberalism and democracy. There is so much to unpack, so we should get started. Here is my conversation with Glenn Tifford. Glenn Tifford, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Glenn, 
who are the PRC's seven sons of national defense? Can you explain a little bit about why the, why their collaboration with U.S. researchers attract your attention? Right. So the seven sons of national defense are seven universities that have their origins in the PRC's military, or actually the CCP's military, because one of the key things to know about the PRC is that the military, the People's Liberation Army of China, actually is the party's military, not the state's military. And so it responds directly to party instructions. These institutions have their origins as essentially the engineering schools, the scientific research enterprises for the People's Liberation Army. And their history over the last uh, several decades um, demonstrates that they've been passed from one unit of the PLA or defense ministry to another. And now most of them are also organized and operated by a specific organ of the PRC state that's separate from the Ministry of Education that runs the traditional universities. And so their mission is to drive the PRC's military modernization. We have no analogous institutions in the United States. It would almost be like a kind of merger of MIT and West Point. The fact that the PRC controls the military in China, I think, is so important to understand China uh, and their politics. In the previous podcast, just a few weeks ago, I described China as having a strong party, but a weak state. I think there's truth to that. You know, many people, historians of China point out that um, that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is actually older than the PRC state. And it was institutionalized first. And the PRC state came second. It was the handmaiden to the CCP. It was there simply to implement the policies that the CCP devised. And over the last 50 years, the relationship between party and state has waxed and waned. But certainly in the last several years, under Xi Jinping, the, uh, the strength of the party has, uh, has come to the fore again. And, and the state, as a semi-autonomous unit, somewhat insulated from party directives as an administrative organ, that has receded somewhat. So to get back into how the, the Seven Sons of National Defense links back to your research, can you explain a little bit about how American tax dollars end up supporting research in China? For the last 45 years or so, as you know, once the United States normalized relations and, and we grew closer to China, there was this sense that China was a giant untapped market for economic integration, but also for knowledge. American universities were among the first American institutions to re-enter China, to rebuild links that had been severed for decades. And the presumption had been that openness is good for, for knowledge acquisition and knowledge production. We should collaborate. There's a tremendous talent in China. There's a tremendous reserve of students who are hungry to come to the United States and attend our institutions. And over the last 40 years, China has built an amazing reserve of phenomenally gifted researchers that you would want to cooperate with if you had real problems that you wanted to solve. And so our academic institutions are premised on the idea that openness and transparency and collaboration is good for knowledge. And for the most part, that's absolutely true. But as in so many other spheres of our engagement with China, China's also learned to game that system. Chinese researchers are obfuscating their ties to the military and coming to the United States and getting advanced training in disciplines that are key to their military modernization. 
And while the research that they're doing in the United States may not be specific to a military project, though sometimes it is, we're essentially making them better scientists, better engineers, and they take those skills back to China and they apply them to military projects. There was a 2013 Chinese language article entitled Numerical Computation and Analysis of Flow over a conical four-body at high angle of attack. Sounds very complicated. It was published in the PRC Journal of Projectiles, Rockets, Missiles, and Guidance. You mentioned some of these problems about how this type of article has direct implications, potential implications for Chinese military, and it included participation with the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that example? Absolutely. So I think that's a great example to, to pull out because what we found over and over again is that there were examples of American faculty collaborating with Chinese postdocs or Chinese professors from these seven schools and other schools, but particularly these seven schools, where they explore very interesting problems in their field. And so the background of your collaborator in China, for example, if their background, if their published research in Chinese indicates, and their CV indicates that their primary research focus is on hypersonics uh, and in military applications of hypersonics, and they come and they work on a very interesting problem um, having to do with fluid dynamics or thermodynamics or material science. It might seem like an academic question to an American researcher. But that Chinese researcher will take that knowledge back and they have a specific project in mind that they want to apply it to. Very often, the Americans are not thinking in those terms. They say, I have a very interesting question of research that I'd like to pursue. I have a brilliant potential Chinese collaborator who very often comes self-funded and they'll bring a student or two to work on the project. And what is not to like about that? And without due regard to how is this knowledge going to be applied? And sometimes the Americans will say that, well, you know, ultimately this project that we're pursuing, the results will be published in an openly accessible journal article that passes through peer review, just like any other piece of academic research. And that's absolutely true. And so why should we be closing that down? It's open to the world. But my response to that is if the published content of research was the only thing that we paid attention to, then the Chinese researchers who are coming to the United States would stay at home. They could simply subscribe to the journals and learn everything they need to know and just read a little bit more. They're coming over here to get trained in the laboratory techniques. They're coming over here to network with other like-minded researchers who, who research similar problems, to build global networks, to train their graduate students, to in every way make themselves better. And ultimately, that's what we want to do with scientific collaboration, raise the bar of knowledge, but not necessarily when their primary mission is to serve a military that the United States is increasingly facing in an adversarial posture in the Pacific. And there's a lot of research that doesn't end up in the journal article that gets published open source. There's a lot of data, there's a lot of information, there's dead ends that people go down and then they decide, oh, that's not a direction that makes sense for, for our current research, but maybe it makes sense for other research. Who knows? There could even be research that ends up becoming classified down the road that isn't used in the open source journal. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And beyond that, too, once you have people on campus, there are the soft connections that happen outside of that specific research project. They learn things by talking to others. Perhaps they participate in projects that they didn't originally arrive and sign on to that are not captured by that single research article. So there's an entire universe of connections that they come to the United States to make. And generally speaking, I'm completely in favor of those. The key thing, though, is who are they? What are their backgrounds? Why are they here? Very often they're here to become better engineers, better scientists. But who is their boss? Who writes their paycheck? What is their mission? That's the question we need to be asking. It's too narrow to say this person is brilliant at what they do. And we have sanctions, for example, against Pakistani and Iranian nuclear scientists. We trained an entire generation of Iranian nuclear scientists before the Iranian revolution. And those people are now, unfortunately, uh, because of politics, are now people we need to contend with in a very different way. Um, we need to be thinking long-term with respect to China. And this is not true of all Chinese scientists. I'm very much in favor of continuing collaboration with the vast majority of Chinese institutions and Chinese researchers. Again, though, the key is know your partner. One of the key takeaways from your research is there needs to be more vetting, more steps taken to kind of mitigate the risk is the, is the way you describe it. What steps does the federal government do today to mitigate this risk in academic research? Right. So this is a problem that's really fallen between the cracks. Universities will say that it is not our job to police national security and to monitor the researchers once they're in the United States. This is a job that the federal government should do. Uh, the federal government will say, well, uh, be careful what you wish for, first of all, because to do that means to have a much sort of closer inspection of what happens on university campuses and academic freedom and institutional autonomy are key values in our university system. Do we really want the FBI and other federal agencies to be watching what happens on campus that closely and to be intervening if they see things that they don't like? So right now, actually, the, the question that you pose is falling between the cracks. Universities say it's not our problem. And law enforcement and the national security community says we're not tasked with this. And we actually respect the institutional autonomy you have on campus. And so it falls largely to consular officers who are granting visa applications to make the determination. And particularly with respect to China, those consular officers are profoundly under-resourced. They have to make determinations literally within a handful of minutes as to whether to grant a visa or not. And if someone has been admitted to a top-tier American institution, they've got a letter of admission from, from that institution and they're self-funded, then the presumption has been admit them unless there's a glaring red light, and very often there isn't. So it is true that our government needs to do better about visa vetting. Whenever that discussion is raised, as it was with the May proclamation that, that the administration released regarding not granting visas to students from institutions that, that are related to civil military fusion in China, the university community gets very concerned because, again, that implicates their freedom to choose who they want to work with. It jeopardizes their institutional autonomy and academic freedom. And it, it legitimately, it, it is a real concern. It legitimately raises racial profiling as well. We need to address that topic in a very, very serious way. But right now, so there's a, a, a tension and a gap between the university community and the federal government on whose responsibility it should be. My own position is that it's a shared responsibility. The federal government needs to be doing a better job 
of deciding who to let in and who not to let in to no partners. And then universities need to be doing a better job of monitoring what happens within their four walls on their campuses. Uh, and there needs to be more information flow and trust between the university community and the government in order to make sure that that happens in a good, fruitful way. But it's not just about letting people in through visas. These are people that are working in China for these other universities that we're partnering with on research. There's a huge difference between saying we have a Department of Defense grant that we are providing to this researcher. And then that researcher partners with somebody at a foreign national university in China that is involved in defense research. Those are That's very different than saying, hey, I've got a graduate student that happens to be from China that's working on my program. I, I think that crosses a much bigger line. Yeah, and I think that actually raises a question of gray areas here. Most American universities do not do classified research. There's NSDD 189, um, which dates from the first Bush administration. Uh, was reaffirmed under the first Bush administration by actually the director of the Hoover Institution in part, um, Secretary Condoleezza Rice. NSD 189 describes fundamental research as open and publishable. Fundamental research in the American academic community has a sacrosanct quality. American academics will tend to say if something is not classified, it absolutely should be open, publishable, not restricted in any way. And so that binary between fundamental and open or classified is what guides this area. And if something is fundamental and open, the American academic community tends to say it should be unrestricted and I should be able then to partner with whomever I choose to that meets my needs and has appropriate qualifications. So partnering with a researcher in China who possibly runs a lab, offers you income, offers you incredible talent, and Maybe it's even a joy and a pleasure to work with, in principle, fits within that paradigm. And the American academic community would then say, well, this is how we do things. If something is classified, then classify it and give me clear guidance. But it's this binary that poses a problem. The U.S. government has not gotten around to restricting this line of research. Then, you know, it's wide open for any kind of collaboration that I want to pursue. And... I'm saying that that binary um, paradigm is is deeply problematic and needs to be changed. Technology moves too quickly, first of all, for the U.S. government to to keep pace with the frontier fields that have to do with national security. So they can't classify every question we require. What in our book, we're asking researchers, we're asking universities to do some hard thinking about these gray areas. Similarly, just because an entity is not on the restricted entity list um, issued by the Department of Commerce does not mean that it's open season to collaborate with that entity. It should not mean that. Right now, in principle, it does. And universities and, and academic researchers will say, well, this party was not on the restricted entity list. Some of these seven sons universities still are not on the restricted entity list. We think that they should be, but even if they are not, that does not mean that they're unproblematic. Uh, and I think our tendency to look at things in that binary is a problem. That, that's an interesting thought, because if you can create more of a continuum rather than a binary, it, it avoids some of those difficult decisions where you all of a sudden go from no restrictions to all restrictions. And Huawei is probably a really good example of that. 
we're we're in the process of moving them into that all restrictions category when maybe they belong somewhere in between, maybe closer to the all restrictions, but maybe not completely cut off from everything within the United States. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the 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 governing understanding is an extremely legalistic understanding of how these rules apply, which led to a really interesting case a year ago at the University of California, where when restrictions came down on against Huawei, um, the university decided that it was going to freeze, postpone, and reevaluate all of its research engagements with Huawei. But there was an entirely wholly owned Huawei subsidiary in the United States that for all intents and purposes was an organ of Huawei, but it had a different corporate registration. And the university therefore decided that it was absolutely fine to continue collaborating with that entity um, simply because it was a legalistic definition. This is not Huawei. And ultimately they, they revisited that. And they, you know, I think it's because that very narrow legalistic interpretation of the US rules was publicized and the PR that was generated changed their understanding of this. But approaching it that way, I think is, is part of why we're in this, in this mess. And no one wants responsibility. That's that's the other issue. And the universities and faculty say, I don't want to be in the position of having to make this determination on my own. Government, just give me clear guidance, yes or no. And the world is not that clear cut. You work out of Stanford, which was instrumental towards creating what's known as Silicon Valley, has produced research that has fueled the tech boom and a big part of American industry, or at least corporate America today. A lot of research in academia doesn't just have defense implications, but also also business implications. Does some of the, the funding that the United States government provides that is in collaboration with foreign countries like China risk the possibility that some of those startups will appear in China rather than in the United States? It's less a question of U.S. government funding to those startups because a tremendous amount of funding that goes into the startups now comes from venture capital firms that have shadow Chinese contributions. Uh, And Chinese VC firms are very large players in Silicon Valley now. Some of them are tied to the, the PLA and some of them are tied to the CCP and they're pursuing very nationalistic PRC missions to acquire technology to take it back to China. Now. If the technology that's being developed is open technology, it's not classified technology, then it gets to the question of America remaining competitive. Look at 5G. These are technologies that America in principle pioneered, but we were unable to market them. We squandered every advantage that we had. Uh, This is a question of national policy. I think that uh, much more could be done in the halls of government to focus industry, to focus policymaking on making sure that America remains economically competitive because the world in which the US dominated industry after industry is gone. We need to run harder, we need to push you know, harder in order to maintain our position. So I think Silicon Valley is, it's a complicated question. It's analogous in many ways to the university sector, yes. Firms though tend to be more focused on their IP protection. It's a different, environment and atmosphere with different rules than the university sector, which tends to be much more open. 
Yeah, but the VCs generally don't get involved until some underlying technology is oftentimes developed at the university level. A lot of the startups begin with university professors or students involved at universities that stumble upon some technology that they realize is developed to an extent that they can market. Right. A lot of technology in the United States begins with U.S. government funding. Uh, the vaccines right now are all begun with NIH funding that goes back years that was studying how to create a coronavirus vaccine. The pharmaceutical companies took it to through the finish line. They, they didn't do it from end to end. So I just wonder that if the United States, as it's supplying some of the, the resources for that initial research, if you're partnering with countries that are potentially your adversary, at least from a trade sense, if not, if not from a defense sense, if there's potential that the startups that are established because of that research down the line, years down the road, end up popping up in Beijing or any of the many cities in, in China, rather than in a place like Silicon Valley. I'm in Indiana. Purdue's got an industrial hub here. Every university seems to have an industrial hub nearby of, of startups that are established because of that university research. Do you think that there's potential that because of so much collaboration, especially with countries that sometimes do industrial espionage, some of the efforts to create nascent industries will, will pop up in other nations rather than ours? You're absolutely right. Yes, yes, and yes. Now, what we've seen in, in the cases that we looked at is, is China is very keen to identify those key technologies, particularly in fields like material science. Uh, China has made a push over the last several decades to develop material science to an extremely high degree in all of its applications, from nanotechnology to jet engine design to, you know, the materials that are used in, in hypersonics development. Material science has a just a huge range of applications beyond traditional military, though a huge range of industrial applications. And if you look at the United States, in the domain of material science, you'll find very high numbers of Chinese graduate students who are extremely talented doing this work. What we should do is do a better job of keeping them in the United States to be driving that research. And of course, you know, stimulating internal production, domestic production of PhD students and high-level researchers in these fields. We've done a very poor job of generating our domestic internal talent. We've been relying too much on the outside world. And I think at a certain point that will catch up to us. So economic competitiveness absolutely is, is key here across a range of domains. But there, I think the onus is on the United States to do a better job of competing, to do a better job of commercializing the technologies we come up with. You also had a very interesting report through the National Endowment for Democracy called Compromising the Knowledge Economy, Authoritarian Challenges to Independent Intellectual Inquiry. Very impressed with your report. It's interesting how many universities are susceptible to influence from China as well as other authoritarian nations. I come from a business background. I, I have an MBA and I find it fascinating that they're willing to be susceptible to this influence because every MBA knows the most important asset of every organization is the brand. 
Uh, and these behaviors strike me as detrimental to the brand equity of a university. I would imagine that the brand equity is always going to be based around academic freedom, based around their ability to produce research without influence from others. Can you explain the financial incentives in academia, how they have changed and how they have allowed some institutions to become corrupted? Absolutely. I'm glad you raised that report because in many ways I see that report from the, that I did for the National Endowment uh, for Democracy and my global engagement report that I did at Hoover as complementary. Too often we speak about the national security threat in science and technology, the threat of espionage and IP theft, for example, of obfuscated military researchers as disconnected from what's happening on the social sciences and humanities side of the university. And we'll talk about self-censorship. We'll talk about the corruption that's happening in academic publishing um, separate from the national security and IP theft dimension. When they're linked and they're happening in within the walls of the same institution, the same universities, uh, very often similar actors are in play. Now, I think the problem is in both those spheres is that you have a misalignment of incentives. Individual researchers and faculty members are incentivized to publish or perish. Uh, to publish in the best journals they possibly can, and to publish as frequently as they can. And so they're incentivized to collaborate with the best people that they can find and pursue really interesting problems. And, and that is as it should be. But they are not incentivized to think much beyond that box. Then you have a layer of administration above them that is incentivized to build the institution, to maximize um, cash flow to you know, grow the number of faculty, there are various metrics that institutions do to rise in the league tables that measure you know, the strength and um, prestige of an institution. And then you have the national security community government. Um, they're incentivized very differently. So aligning those incentives is key here. What happens at the level of the individual researcher who has the academic freedom to pursue collaboration with whomever they choose is they're thinking much more narrowly in professional terms. How can I answer this very interesting question? How can I move my career forward? How can I make you know, uh, potentially productive engagements with people in my field? And so when they think in those narrow terms, they may make choices that compromise the mission and the values of the larger institution. And that happens time and time again when money is at stake, particularly in the social sciences and in the humanities, which are experiencing funding crises in the last decade or more. Uh, after 2008, the financial crisis, when state university systems experienced extremely severe cuts to their funding, China arrived at that moment with a checkbook. And it said, we're willing to fund, and the amounts are really quite small, but we're willing to fund activities in particular areas. And if you happen to work on China, this arrived at exactly the right moment. And on the face of it, it may not look terribly threatening, but along with that money sometimes comes difficult choices. The Chinese do not write a check without strings attached very often. And so they're, uh, and it is up to an institution to be able to say no. It is up to a researcher to be able to say no when they feel like their own authority, when their own independence is being compromised. But very often to keep a collaboration going, to keep everyone smiling, to iron out the wrinkles that arise, compromises are made. And you give an inch and after a while you've given a foot and then a mile. 
some institutions are much more able to resist that than others, but these kinds of tactics are widely applied around the world. I can completely understand when it's a professor, especially a junior professor who is in, who is struggling to obtain funding and they're narrowly focused on their research. They're narrowly focused on a task at hand. I'm less forgiving of upper administration that is supposed to be focused on the organization as a whole. And what I described before is the brand of the organization, what it stands for. And brand sounds really callous. It's, it's really about principles of an organization. That, that's what brand is about. It, you, you stand for something in business and your customers respect that you stand for something. And in an organization like a university, you stand for certain things and people, people respect what you stand for. And when they think of those, those ideas, those principles, they think of your organization over time. But when you, when you fall short of that, that's when your brand equity is harmed and it, it hurts your ability to be able to succeed long-term. There was a quote in your National Endowment for Democracy report that said, faculty who raise uncomfortable questions about potential high-value foreign partnership risk marginalization by their local administrators in exclusion from future consultation. That bothers me. I think it's important to understand the way that universities are governed. Universities are definitely not like firms. A faculty have a tremendous amount of autonomy. It's, it's intrinsic to uh, the you know, academic freedom and the institutional autonomy that, that universities enjoy. And so faculty are encouraged to pursue the connections that are most meaningful to them. Uh, institutions in the last two or three years, partly as a result of what we've learned about how China is gaming the system, are generally tightening their internal governance and compliance rules to restrict the kinds of poor choices that have been made in the past. But it varies from institution to institution. And some will say, oh, this looks great. This project looks amazing. I can take the money that's coming, this grant application, and use it for things that I want to do without understanding that, that there are compromises made along the way. Universities are, again, responding to different sets of metrics, right? Brand is key here. Universities are absolutely focused at the level of administration uh, on their prestige, on their ability to attract talent. Their brand is critical here, right? But the universities at the higher levels of administration may not always know what their individual faculty are up to. We have multiple cases of individual faculty signing contracts that they're not authorized to sign for engagements with foreign countries. And, and very often these individual faculty members don't quite understand what they're empowered or not empowered to do because they haven't been trained, they haven't been taught, they haven't been told. These are the rules that you need to follow. Uh, so tightening internal governance is a big piece of this puzzle here. Uh, universities are getting better at that. There was a case in Australia where a university signed a document for a Confucian Institute that was so poorly translated that there were sections that didn't make sense. It was clear that China provided something to a university president and said, here, sign this. Again, my concern is less about the low-level professor, and I, I find significant concern when university presidents or upper administration 
don't seem to set those guardrails that are necessary at the university level. Yeah, I think it, it, for lack of a better word, indicates a certain level of incompetence. And publicizing cases like that, I think, are key to, to reversing. I know at my own institution, signing contracts um, for grants requires higher levels of review by legal teams, by compliance officers, uh, and they require training in various you know, regulatory regimes that govern international cooperation, too, whether it's um, OFAC or other kinds of rules. Not every institution follows those rules. And I think the rush to get into China, the rush to make potentially fruitful collaborations with Chinese institutions has, uh, has led many to not impose the guardrails that, that should have been imposed. And in some cases, in the case of academic publishing, which we haven't talked about yet, I think really there it's a commercial decision that's being made. Academic publishers, you know, it used to be that, that universities, that, that academia, had their own academic presses that sponsored the journals that were key to disciplines. In the last 25 years, the business model of academic publishing has, tr has changed tremendously, such that over half of academic publishing now, now sits in large publishing and media conglomerates, which are for-profit enterprises. And so when China comes along and says to a very large publishing house that here are some titles, here are some articles that we find politically problematic or ideologically problematic, we'd appreciate it if you made these disappear within the Chinese market. And oh, by the way, if you want to continue to do business with us, we need to maintain these kinds of good, friendly, cooperative relations. Then the business case, when you sit in the business office says, yes, we will do what it takes to maintain our relationship with China because a very large part of our annual income stream comes from China. Decisions get made that jeopardize academic freedom. This is problematic. Didn't Cambridge University Press drop a book entirely because of concerns uh, from China? So Cambridge University Press, actually, I, the, I, I'm, I'm not sure the, the book that you have in mind. They did with respect to Russia, and that had to do with lawfare. But Cambridge University Press, actually, what they did is they blocked over 300 titles from one of their flagship China studies journals from appearing in China. So that if I went to China and I tried to access the website to look at the back catalog of this journal, those 325 articles, book reviews, and other items would be invisible as if they'd never existed, never been published. And they were about the kinds of topics you might expect, Tibet, Tiananmen, and others that were politically or ideologically problematic for China. Uh, when that was publicized, then the reputational harm that was caused to Cambridge University Press was significant, and they actually retracted and, and walked that back. Uh, but other academic presses have made similar decisions and stood by them, um, simply because the business case to continue to have access to the China market is such that they are not terribly worried about, uh, about the harm that it does to their brand in the West. Um, the West, in a way, is dependent on them already. What's it going to do? Walk away? And of course, China has continued to fund research, fund universities, continue to use economic incentives to be able to steer decisions at universities about topics discussed, speakers brought in. To me, that's, that's even the bigger concern because what happens in China is, is questionable to me. You know, China has some rights to be able to govern itself. 
But when China is telling American universities what it should be doing, that starts to cross a line where authoritarian nations are now influencing the freedom of speech and freedom of thought within Western nations. Absolutely. And you see, look at the NBA case, right? I mean, follow the money. It isn't just American institutions like universities. It's also American firms. It's American airlines. It's American hotel chains. Uh, Mercedes-Benz, for example, had to change an advertising campaign that included a quote, I think it was from the Dalai Lama, um, simply because it offended China. Uh, China is able simply to wield its economic coercive power around the world in various domains that have to do with expression in order to essentially project its own view, its own discourse power around the world. Over a decade ago, China launched a campaign to push its discourse power. The Chinese Communist Party came to the conclusion that if you looked in the media space, if you looked at the university space and a host of other domains, Western values of freedom of expression were dominant and Western points of view about democracy versus authoritarianism were dominant. China identified that as a problem. It saw the goal of projecting its own discourse power around the world as key to kind of creating a more favorable international environment for authoritarianism. And so across all of the, those domains, when you look and knit them together, you realize it's part of a larger strategy to kind of rewrite the rules about uh, freedom of expression, to rewrite the balance of values between authoritarianism and liberalism, and to create institutions and platforms by which, through which China can advocate its own view of those issues. So, you know, hemming in, trimming the sails of Cambridge University Press is part of that, telling an NBA general manager that he doesn't have the freedom to tweet in support of the Hong Kong protests is part of that, telling American airlines that they must relist Taiwan as a jurisdiction under the PRC is part of that. And telling individual researchers or research teams that, oh, you cannot have that member on your research team because if you do, we won't grant visas to the entire team and you can't get your work done is part of that. And it, it's incumbent on all of us to say no. I just finished David Shambaugh's China Goes Global and he talks about the exact report you just mentioned where China was looking at ways that it could create soft power. And David Shambaugh said to somebody in China, just get out of the way. You've got brilliant people. If they're just allowed to do what they do, you'll, you'll have plenty of soft power. But China's gone a different direction. They've gone the direction that Christopher Walker talks about uh, regarding sharp power and trying to do the things that we've been talking about today, try to influence people through putting pressure rather than just allowing their people to express their culture. Yeah, I think the greatest restraint on China's rise is the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese governments. As anybody who's studied China as long as I have knows, the phenomenal reserve of talent and energy that resides in the Chinese people is being hemmed in, is being squandered, uh, and has decade after decade by governments that are more interested in control than in liberating the potential of their people. Now, under Xi Jinping, those kinds of restraints have grown even stronger, largely because the CCP is interested first and foremost in monopolizing and maximizing power. Everything has to serve that mission. 
And so to the extent that China grows more powerful in the world, that's secondary to the Communist Party as the dictatorship that controls China, then becomes the most powerful in the world. You're absolutely right. And I think that the greatest restraint on China's capacity is the party. They will not get out of the way because they understand that the moment they do, they have the example of the Soviet Union to look at. Xi Jinping very early on, one of the first speeches he gave, identified the fate of the Soviet Union as, as one of his primary concerns, avoiding that. You know, he, he felt that the party was on a path, a descent towards that outcome. And it was about intensifying the ideological and political and, and organizational discipline within the party, and then purging the body politic of ideas that were damaging to the party's status in China. Uh, and, and you have what I think the evidence is all around us now. Now that China is more powerful, it's doing that internationally too. Sometimes it's doing that affirmatively. Sometimes it's doing that simply because China now is rich enough and powerful enough in, in the world that its domestic decisions radiate outwards. We've been talking a lot about China. How do other authoritarian nations influence academia? Right. So China's the big player here because Chinese academia is, uh, is phenomenally well-funded now, and it's phenomenally internationalized. But if you look around the world, um, the democratic recession of the last dozen years has, has gathered a pace in places that were more promising not long ago. Hungary, for example, Turkey, even Russia has changed tremendously. Those who follow academic freedom, and this is Scholars at Risk, for example, the National Endowment for Democracy, these are institutions that, that, that issue scorecards and also Freedom House of Academic Freedom. Uh, and if you look, Hungary in particular has backslid tremendously such that um, you know, universities are under phenomenal pressure to, um, to sanitize the work that they do. Central European University was essentially ousted and forced to largely decamp to Vienna to preserve its freedom, uh, to, to operate the way we think a university should operate, which is free intellectual inquiry. And this was largely at the behest of Viktor Orban. But other institutions, cultural institutions within Hungary are also feeling the pressure. Likewise, since the abortive coup in Turkey, there has been a profound backlash against Turkish academia. Uh, a large number of, of academics in Turkey have been dismissed from their positions, many prosecuted under extremely liberally interpreted terrorism offenses, right? Likewise in Russia, academic freedom. So it has been challenged and curtailed. And so this is, is part and parcel of a larger upsurge in authoritarianism around the world that we need to be attentive to. On my podcast, I've been talking a bit about China and I've been connecting the sense of liberal internationalism back to the global ascendance of China. Kicked off a discussion with John Eikenberry to discuss liberal internationalism before I started talking to scholars about China. I'd like to get your perspective. Glenn, do you feel liberal values make Western academia and maybe even other institutions more vulnerable or more resilient to authoritarian influences? Liberal values are a greatest strength, but they're also a weakness as well. And I would never want to compromise them. But what we do need to do is understand that there are those who want to use them against us, who want to take advantage of our openness and our transparency, 
to um, without contrib- it's like the relative and we've all have that proverbial relative who comes over and uh, and helps themselves to your pantry night after night right but maybe doesn't invite you ever to their home or maybe we have a friend like that right at a certain point one understands that the relationship is is out of balance and maintaining or restoring balance is key here I do think that that we have to work very hard to retain what we have. And in fact, I think our greatest defense is shoring up our liberal values. The last thing we want to do is become more like like our authoritarian rivals around the world. So finding a way to do that, I think, is key. It's remarkable to me how much has changed in 40 years of American hyperpower. The idea of an East German rocket scientist you know, wandering the halls of MIT or Stanford or Berkeley in the 1960s or 70s would have been almost unimaginable. And yet we permit similar things to happen today in the name of of academic freedom uh, and institutional autonomy. So I think there needs to just be a a different balancing that that has to occur, Uh, 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 an awakening to the idea that the United States is back in multipolar competition with regimes and governments that are antithetical to its own values. Uh, So defense of democracy begins at home. Thank you so much, Glenn. This has been a wonderful conversation. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank the Hoover Institution for making Glenn Tifford's global engagement publicly available. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.